0: You're listening to the Redemption Hill Church podcast from Tallahassee, Florida. For more information, visit our website at rh-church.com. Hey, Pastor Chad here. I'm so glad you've taken the time to listen. We're currently studying verse by verse through the book of Acts. Among other things, we'll see the mission, the persecution and the expansion of the church. Now, time for this week's message. And then, if you guys have your Bibles, I uh, want you guys to open them up to the book of Acts. The book of Acts. We've been in Acts now for some time, and we're going to keep on tracking through it. So, Acts chapter 13. We spent about three weeks going through the 12th chapter in the book of Acts, and um, really, kind of a neat chapter, but really in the whole scope of of this book of this letter that that Luke wrote, that's kind of a parenthesis in what's what's going on. And so, you know, Luke going back to uh, chapter eleven, you have this um, this great kind of paradigm shift with the um, between the power of the church. Right prior to this, prior to really chapter eleven, you have a lot of the main uh, power coming from Jerusalem, and, and all of a sudden we see this um, revival of sorts break out in this place called Antioch, and Antioch will really become this, this hub, and today we, we see where it generates a lot of this power. This, this chapter also, chapter 13, really is a transition, it's a change. We get to, to now where we're approaching really the second half of the book of Acts, and so things look different the character um, the main character the main character is always going to be God and always going to be Jesus but but those supporting actors and actresses if you will begin to change and we we kind of say goodbye to some of those main disciples that we've seen and and for those who are with us at the beginning of our journey at Redemption Hill, we went through the Gospel of John, and we saw all these different cool stories about Jesus and the disciples and all the really familiar people. Well, some of those begin to transition, and now we see a new character, not really a new, but someone who has been kind of a very small role, begin to take a very major role, and that guy is by the name of Saul, who we'll see today, Goes by the name Paul. So we're in Acts chapter thirteen. Acts chapter thirteen. And today, uh, Lord willing, we are going to look at the first thirteen verses in in Acts chapter thirteen. And and so what we're going to do is I'm gonna I'm gonna read these thirteen verses. Then we're gonna pray, and then we're gonna see what the Lord has in store for us. So Acts chapter thirteen, starting in verse one, it says this. Now. There were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius from Cyrene, uh, Manian, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. And while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Verse 3 says, And then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Verse 4, so being sent out by, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. Uh, from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John to assist them. That John is John Mark. Mark being the one who writes the, the gospel, Mark. Verse 6, and they had gone through the whole island as far as Pathmus. And they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence, who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elemas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from their faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, Verse 10 says, And he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of deceit and villainy, will you not stop at making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. And immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed uh, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. And then finally, verse 13 says, Now Paul and his companions set sail for, from Pathos and came to Pergia and Pamphila, and John left them and returned to Jerusalem. All right. There's a lot there today, so let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you so much for this day, and we thank you for just an opportunity that we have to come. Lord, I'm thankful for our worship. Uh, God, I'm so grateful that you've given people in our faith family gifts. And Lord, it excites me to see them use those gifts for your glory. It excites me to see our teenagers involved in our church. It excites me to see a mother and a son up on the stage helping us in worship. Lord, I'm so grateful for this faith family. Lord, I pray this morning now as we dig into your word, that your word takes center stage. Lord, I pray that you guard us from erring, but you allow us to stay on this path. Lord, help us to draw close to you. Jesus, I pray that you give me your words, give me your heart, give me your passion. Sometimes we get to these, these particular passages and And we see opposition arising. And Lord, the day and age that we live, it's easy to somewhat put ourselves in these situations and consider ramifications. So Holy Spirit, I pray right now that you do a work on us. Lord, I pray that you tenderize our hearts, that you open our eyes that you allow your word to penetrate us. Lord, may your word do just like it did to Paul us. May it astound us. May we leave today changed, not because of a song that we sing, not because uh, of something I may say, but because of your word. So in great faith, Holy Spirit, we ask for you to be a wrecking ball today. In your sons, beautiful and precious, in the holy name that we pray. Amen. And so, when we look at this this passage, the first three verses, we see, um, to me, a a really neat um, beginning to this transition, to this change, to this this shift in power. You have now everyone's focused here on Antioch. And again, as we were talking about in, in chapter 11, uh, this, this church really becomes this powerhouse, and what was so impressive about the, the church in Antioch is as the revival began, as the people became, uh, began to know the Lord and grow close to him, it wasn't driven uh, by a pastor. It wasn't driven by some paid professional, but these were literally believers that, that came to know Jesus, and, and, and they began to share with other people. And so you have almost like this home church mentality that they're just kind of coming together. They're, they're reading their Bibles and then they take what they read, they, the scriptures that they know, they take it and they apply it and actually do something with it. They begin to follow the commands of Jesus. And of, of, they look at the stuff of the Old Testament and, and they see how things should be different and they begin to tell people and one by one people come to know the Lord. And so this church grows, and and Barnabas is sent from Jerusalem just to kind of make sure everything's good, everything's okay, that that they're on the right track, and to really help lend some support. And so Barnabas rolls up. He sees, wow, this is awesome, uh, great things are going on, and he's helping. And he realizes very quickly that this job was way too big for just him. And so he goes back, and he finds his distant friend, Saul. The same Saul that we, we read about several chapters back, the one that persecuted Christians, you know, the, the, the one that was on a witch hunt to try and find Christians who, who had left Jerusalem and was on this mad dash to Damascus with, with addresses in hand with the intent of arresting, parading the people back to Jerusalem, and then ultimately, more than likely, killing people based on their faith. And on this journey, he's blinded. He has this encounter with Jesus. He's blinded. He's he's knocked off of his horse. He hears the audible voice of Jesus, and he comes to know the Lord, and his his life changes forever. I mean, you talk about seismic change. I don't know that we have a a grander or greater change that we see in Scripture than Paul, Silas, or Saul. And so anyways, he goes and, and like... And We can't blame people, but as, as he's converted, as he, as he begins to show up at these places, as he begins to walk into these synagogues, the same synagogues that previously when he would go, he would go with the intent of arresting and beating and killing people, he shows up and everyone's nervous. It makes sense, doesn't it? And again, I, I've said this several times, but I, to me it's, it's the clearest picture today for us to, to try and wrap our minds around what has happened, but... Saul, before Jesus, before coming to know the Lord, would almost fit the profile of a leader in Isis. A deeply religious person, but the religion was off base. And so he comes, he knows the Lord, and everyone's a little nervous about Saul. And so eventually Barnabas tells Saul to go back home, go back to Tarsus. And, and we don't see him in Scripture, and although it's only maybe two chapters in Scripture, it's about ten years in a timeline. Barnabas goes back. Remember Barnabas, the great encourager, goes back and he finds Saul, and he brings Saul with him to Antioch. And this great partnership begins to, to, to take place, and they begin to work in the church, and, and uh, amazing things happen. And, and so we pick that up here. And now the church is more established. And when we read those first verse, that first verse in, in um, Acts chapter 13, they begin to talk about this church. And, and the scripture is clear that it makes this, um, this difference. It talks about prophets and teachers. And the church has grown. The leadership has expanded beyond just, Paul, or, and just Barnabas and Saul. They, they, list, they give us a few names there. <clears throat> And while we don't know much more beyond what's just mentioned here, what's cool to me is as you look at these names and you try to piece some things together, we see that this church in Antioch was a very diverse church. It obviously begins to start with with Barnabas, who, who, as we introduce Barnabas at the end of Acts chapter 4, we remember that Barnabas was originally from Cyprus, that he was a Hellenistic Jew, he was a Greek Jew. So we begin with with Barnabas, this great encourager, but then it goes on and it talks about Simeon, who was also called, or was who was called um, Niger, that Niger is a Latin word for black. And so it doesn't. I'm not a rocket scientist here when we come to the conclusion that Simeon was more than likely black. Uh, many scholars believe. This Simeon is the same one we read about in Luke, who was the one who would carry the cross of Jesus. The next person we see there, we see Lucius, who was from Cyrene. Cyrene was actually North Africa. So again, more than likely, probably a friend. Some will even say that Simeon was the one that that probably introduced Lucius to Christ, that may have discipled him, that brought him up. But more than likely, again, Lucius was probably black. And then check this out. So then we go, we go from, from Barnabas, the Hellenistic Jew, to um, these Simeon and Lucius. And then we have um, Manian. And notice what they say about him. It says here, he was a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. That Herod, and again, remember, as we've talked about Herod, sometimes it gets confusing. Herod is a title. This was Herod Antipas. This Herod that's mentioned here that he was friends with, that he grew up with, that was almost like a foster brother too, is the same Herod who had John the Baptist beheaded. So understand, the family that brought him up, he comes up in a very well-to-do, almost a social elitist, but he was not brought up to love Jesus. He was not brought up to to love Jesus this faith that's being taught in Antioch. And to me, later in, this, in the message, we're going to be a little bit more forceful, but here, to me, that simple statement, just acknowledging that person, to me, shows the grace and the sovereignty of God. It, it shows that, that no matter what we're brought into, how amazing, And as a side note in our welcome, as Jessica stood up here and encourages us to, to bring gifts and bring things for this pregnancy center. And she adds a little note in there, how this means so much to her because as a six-month-old, her birth mother dropped her off at a bar. Most of us don't have that same story. But, but sometimes we think, like, the way we were brought up, it handicaps us, it defines us that we can't break free from that. And what an amazing testimony to see Jessica here today loving the Lord, taking a lead with this, this um, uh, potential partnership with this great organization in our community. She didn't allow something to happen to her several years ago to define who she is today. And to me, what a beautiful picture of grace just in a simple name and a statement of who he hung out with. And from there, it goes to remind us of Saul. Here's what I want you guys, if you have a pen and a Bible, to underline. Verse 2, it says this, and while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said. Now, what he's about to say is important, and I don't want to discount what's about to be said, but but that first part is so critical because today, one of the questions that I, I, um, in conversations with people, that most people, many people will wrestle with is trying to figure out what's God's will in my life. How do I find out what God's will in my life is? And, And somehow we make it this mystical Thing that maybe one day we'll have something. Maybe one day something will show up. Maybe one day an airplane will fly by with this banner behind it that says, Chad will do whatever. But we wrestle with this, what is God's will? What is God's will? And to me, right here, right there in verse 2, we see the pattern in which we can find how we can discover God's will in our lives, how we can discover God's will for um, redemption Hill. What it says right there, it wasn't the things that they were doing. It wasn't these actions that they were trying to uh, worship Jesus. But what it says right there is they were simply worshiping the Lord. It says, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, my encouragement to us, for those who are really trying to find God's will in your life, you worship the Lord. How do we worship the Lord? You read God's Word. You, as you read it, you apply what you learn. As the Holy Spirit directs you, typically it will be direction through God's Word and through prayer. The idea of fasting, to me, fasting, we don't necessarily do it a lot. I encourage our faith family leading up to the primary here in Florida to spend a few days of fasting in prayer over that. Typically when you see fasting in Scripture, it's attached to this idea that they were expecting something. They were looking for something. They were desperate for God's leadership, for God's discernment in their life. And so this, not just the leadership here, but the entire church of Antioch, they are worshiping the Lord, and they're fasting. They're looking for something. And as they worship and as they fast, the Holy Spirit begins to reveal. And he reveals this special calling for Barnabas and Saul, that he has set them apart. He has a special task for those two to go and to take the gospel. Verse 3 says this, Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Let's add in there the first part of verse 4. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went. What I like about this is they knew that the Holy Spirit had given them a word. I don't know how the Holy Spirit gave that word. It doesn't tell us if it was an audible word. My hunch is being at the very beginning of Acts chapter 1. It talks about the um, teachers and prophets. And I... I personally believe that in this that the Lord gave some of those prophets some direction but they were continuing to fast and they were continuing to pray and the Holy Spirit gave discernment the Holy Spirit gave direction the Holy Spirit gave them next steps But this is the thing. Sometimes we talk about God's will. What is God's will? I want to know what God's will in my life is. And and we'll pray about it. We'll we'll ask God to give us um, some direction. And then as he begins to reveal it, we don't want to take the steps. (laughs) See, sometimes what I've learned in my life, while we claim it's the most frustrating time, we like to park there. Right, Because we can say, I'm just, I just need God to tell me. I just need God to tell me. I, just, I need direction. I'm just looking. I'm searching for God's will. I and mean, we can still go on and do everything. It doesn't really affect our, our everyday life. But when God finally gives you direction, understand this. According to this, as we see played out here in Scripture, God typically doesn't force the direction. He allows you to make the choice. Here's the plans I have for you. Now what are we going to do with it? You see this amazing partnership. doesn't mean we're not equal with God, but God's allowed us this free will. He's allowed us to make choices of whether we want to join him on this exciting journey or if we want to fight, we want to avoid, we want to sit back and watch everything else take place. We can't discount, I don't believe, the role in which God's allowed us to play. God is still sovereign. God's still in charge. But he allows you and me a choice. And thankfully, Barnabas and Saul decide to follow. And thankfully, they packed their stuff up and they took those steps. They began to walk. They began to follow. They began to do what the Holy Spirit had directed them to do. And this is where the story gets interesting. Because Sometimes I believe this. I, I, have, I personally, Chad Clement, is guilty of this one. That we, that I, begin to believe as I follow the Lord, as I do what God wants me to do, then everything's going to be good. It's going to be cushy. It's going to be rosy. It's going to be nothing but a rose garden. But I typically forget that every rose garden has thorns. And while it looks beautiful, and while the, the, the smell is great, it's not always easy. And those journeys, they can leave cuts and bruises. They can get hard. And so as we see this kind of spiritual high, this amazing thing, we see this step that Antioch is, they, they've come together. And the first time that we see in Scripture, the first time we know about a church comes together, they gather, and they decide we're going to send these guys out. We're going to send them away. We're going we're to send them outside of our city And they're going to go. They're going to be our missionaries. They're going to embark on this amazing journey. And so you have this great spiritual, great high, and then we see them get in a boat, and they take off. And they go to this island called Cyprus. What's interesting about Cyprus is um, it was a very beautiful island. A lot of commentators would say to help us with our current perspective, our current understanding, our idea, it's, it's the same the way that we would consider or think of a Hawaii or maybe the Bahamas. I mean, it was, it was almost like this fantasy island type place. Beautiful. Weather was perfect. Why they chose to go to Cyprus, I, again, I don't know. My, my, again, my hunch on this is that Barnabas was from Cyprus. That was his home. And no doubt he knew it was a beautiful place, but he also knew it was a very lost place. You see, in Cyprus, most of their worship surrounded the goddess Venus or Aphrodite, the goddess of love. It was a very wicked, a very vile island to the point where historians tell us that every lady, every female on the island would have to serve at least one year minimum of their life as a temple prostitute. This was a very twisted area. And so Barnabas knew the need. It was his home people. And so if he was going to go on this journey, if he was going to begin this great um, missionary Voyage of taking the gospel to people. Why not start with home? And so he goes, and they travel across or through the Mediterranean. They land on one end of the island, and basically we see them go from from one end, the eastern end of the island, to the western end of the island. In the midst of this, we're introduced that it wasn't just... Barnabas and Saul that left, but they brought um, a helper with them, John Mark. John Mark comes to just be their helper. Some of your versions may refer to him as a servant. His his job was simply to do whatever Barnabas and Saul asked them to do. The interesting thing about John Mark is this. We we learn that John Mark was actually the cousin of Barnabas. John Mark was brought up in a fairly well-to-do family. He had a lot of resources at hand. So we don't know entirely why he decides to come, but he comes with Barnabas and Saul, and he's their helper. And, and, and we get in this voyage, and if you think about this, you know, I can almost imagine the church at Antioch as these guys are leaving, you know, lining the streets, a little ticker tape parade, you know, applauding them. Great job, let's go, go, go. And then you sail across, you get to this island, and we know very little in this first leg of their journey. It's really, we don't see anything happening until we get to the other end of the island. I mean, they've gone 90 miles across the island. They've been preaching the gospel, and that was the regular routine that Paul would do. Paul would show up at a place. He'd go to the synagogues first. That would allow him an opportunity to preach. He'd preach in the synagogues, and then from there, he'd go into the community. And he does that, and we don't see. Now, there probably were converts, but we don't really see that mentioned. As we talk about this idea of these spiritual highs and spiritual lows, I mean, the spiritual highs, we're going, we're excited we get there, and what looks like, what appears to be here as we're reading, not a whole lot is happening. They're knocking on doors and not many people are opening. And then they get across the other side, this city called Paphos. Cyprus is under Roman rule, Roman jurisdiction, and they had set up a proconsul, almost like a governor of sorts, over the island Paphos is a relatively new city. And it has been built and established for the Roman leadership. And so the proconsul, the governor, Sergius Paulus, is seated there. And as we see this, he's, there's some curiosity. And, and, and he has this sidekick, if you will, who has this name Bar-Jesus or Elimus. But Luke tells us that he's a magician. Now today, we think about that. We don't typically associate, well, maybe we do now. I don't know. But We don't typically associate, associate a, a leader of a country that has a magician with him. It wasn't abnormal during this day. We also can tell by his name that he was of Jewish descent. That name Bar-Jesus, the meaning of Bar-Jesus meant son of a savior or son of salvation. And so Elemis had built up this reputation possibly to be some type of spiritual descendant of Jesus. Again, this isn't that far removed from the days in which Jesus walked. The stories of Jesus were still alive. There were still people who had witnessed the miracles of Jesus. They had witnessed the great power of Jesus. And so you have this guy here, Bar Jesus, who is who is trying to make this um, niche, this, this place in Cyprus, that, that he could be this person that could predict the future. This type of magician of sorts. And so Sergius Paulus is looking for an advocate. He's looking for some inside scoop. He's, he's found his spiritual advisor. And along come Barnabas and Saul. And they're preaching in the synagogues. They're going and telling people, and word begins to drift to Sergius about what's taking place. And it piques his interest. He requests for somebody to go and bring them to him. He wants to hear what's going on. When Sergius Paulus, or when Alamas or Barjesus hears about this, he gets upset and mad. And he begins to try and do whatever he can to persuade the governor that he was right. And these guys that had come had just arrived in their city. They were the wackos. They were the wrong ones. And to me, as we see in verse 9, we see a great transition. Verse 9 says this, But Saul, who was called Paul... Filled with the Holy Spirit. Again, if you have your Bibles, help me here, take that out. Underline says, filled with the Holy Spirit. And Paul's response to Bar Jesus, the one who's trying to twist Jesus, the one who's trying to twist the gospel, the one who's trying to manipulate the governor of Cyprus, says that Paul looked at him intently. Verse 10 says this, And he said, You son of the devil, you enemy of righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, you will not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord. When you read that, that doesn't sound very Christian-y, does it? The one thing that we will see in the Apostle Paul, starting here, and going throughout the rest of the book of Acts, one thing that we will quickly realize is Paul was not a wimp. he was not scared. He saw this, and, and, and this is quite honestly. I, I, the last two days I've, I have wrestled with this. I, in fact, last night we went to, we, Courtney and the kids and I we went to dinner, and we were coming back, and I, I told Courtney I was wrestling with it, and last night I stayed up in bed talking about, it, and I had heartburn after that. I don't know if it was the Holy Spirit or the Mexican food. I don't know what it was. Here, here's the hard part. We, we live today in a society that strives so much to be uh, politically correct, and to be politically correct basically means that we can't tell somebody that they're wrong on anything, and as each day passes, it just gets crazier and crazier. And I think for us as believers, we find ourselves in this very difficult situation. I believe this as believers, as followers of Jesus. That we are called to both grace and truth. Both should be married and never separated. And that's not always easy. Sometimes we have camps that can be all truth. I mean, all truth. Like they know it. They will declare it. They will shout it. But they lack grace. They, they lack the love of God. So they can, they can tell you. They can tell you you're wrong. I mean, they can point your finger. They can show you every sin. But the focal point is not redemption. The focal point is not restoration. The focal point is your wrong. It's your sin. But then we have almost another camp that, that is taking root to where it's all grace, it's all love, and there's no truth or little truth. And when you look at that scale, when you have all of one and none of the other or little of the other it throws it all off balance but here's what i want us to see in this passage paul is extremely firm he pulls no punches he doesn't sugarcoat anything he he goes as far to say you're a son of the devil now, listen, we all will come in contact with people that we know aren't believers. I would not use your opening line as, you're the son of the devil. Okay? I, you will not get far. But what we see in this passage, but building up to this point, starting in the very first verse, we see a few things that have, have been bedrocks that Paul and Barnabas The church of Antioch, they were worshiping the Lord. They were worshiping him. They were fasting. They were praying. They were seeking the Lord. And we keep seeing that they were filled with the Holy Spirit. They were called by the Holy Spirit. They were sent by the Holy Spirit. And so as Paul steps up, as Paul intently and intensely looks into the eyes, I believe this, the Holy Spirit gave him discernment. As if to be able to see the heart and the soul of him, of Bar-Jesus. And he knew, he knew the intent of Bar-Jesus. It was not to do good. It was to twist the truth. And Paul lights into him. In Acts 13, 4 through 13, we see Murphy's Law played out. You know, Murphy Law tells us that whatever we think will happen, won't happen, right? If we think it will take a short period of time to get this accomplished, it will take a long period of time. If we think it's going to be easy, it's going to be hard. And Paul comes face to face with this opposition. Folks, I, I believe this. The day and age that we live, we are being called And we'll continue to be called to stand firm in our faith and our convictions. But where do we find our faith and our convictions? Where do we find what we need to stand firm on? We need to follow the same example that the Church of Antioch did. We need to be worshiping the Lord. We need to be fasting and praying. We need to be in God's word. If we want to know what God wants us to do, if we want to know what's right, we want to know what's wrong, we have to be consuming God's word every single day, if we, are not, if we are not reading God's word, if we are not learning that, how in the world are we going to be able to stand up and give an, an account for anything? How are we going to know what's right and what's wrong? Part, quite honestly, we are where we're at today in the craziness of the world, in the chaos of our country, because to a great extent we have churches that are filled with people who don't know what the Bible says. Wednesdays, I have a chance to meet with three or four pastors here in town, and we just pray. We share requests and different things, and I'm the youngest guy in the group. The other guys are all pastors of established churches, and one of the things I continually hear them say in their churches, and they're not being judgmental. They're just being honest, and they say that um, many of their people view God's Word as an opinion, almost on the same level as their own personal opinion. And when God's word matches what they think or what they want to think, they'll accept it. But when it doesn't, the Bible must be wrong and they're right. And folks, I don't think you can find that verse in the Bible that will tell you if you think what you know is more or better than what this says, go with it. I mean, if you can, please, After the service, I'll be at the back doors. Show it to me. Help me out. Because it'd make my job a whole lot easier. There's times in our lives that we're going to have to take stands. And it's not always going to be easy. It's not always going to be fun. It's not always going to be enjoyable. But in the midst of that, there are times when we have to be strong and firm. But you remember what I said about truth and grace? We can't separate the two. And while we read this, while it looks like Paul is being just snarky and mean, notice what he predicts for Bar-Jesus. He says, listen, for a season you'll be blinded. And this is, again, where I believe we see grace. Because if anybody knew anything about being blinded, it would have been Paul, wouldn't it? Paul was blinded. Paul knew what it was like. And in my personal opinion as he tells bar jesus you will be blinded there's this hope inside paul that that will be something that will reach bar jesus that will be a way in which the lord will use to humble and to to allow bar jesus to see there's one true living god jesus christ And to me, I see that that as grace, as as Paul still trying to throw out that lifeline. It's not over, just like it wasn't over for Mannion at the beginning when we talked about him and Herod. This grace, we see a thread of truth and grace interwoven all throughout this story and all throughout the gospel. And we cannot lose sight of that. We are living in a world that's getting darker and darker, and we have to take firmer and firmer stands, but we have to do it with love and with grace. Otherwise, it's empty words. It means nothing. And this is what I love about this story. As this whole interaction between Paul and Jesus takes place, Sergius Paulus, the governor, is watching and he sees, he sees God immediately judge Bar-Jesus. He sees him blinded Bar-Jesus, loses his sight, and he's going around begging people to help him get around and find his way. But notice, verse 12, it says, Then the proconsul Sergius Paulus, believed. When he saw what had occurred, but then notice this. It wasn't the miracle. It wasn't this emotional high. It wasn't the wow factor that convinced Sergius Paulus. Because notice what causes him to be astounded. It says, For he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. The miracles we see all throughout Scripture were simply used to almost crack open a door. Almost like an opening illustration to a a sermon. To maybe grab someone's attention. But it was never the primary way in which someone received salvation. It's always been through the Word. It's always been through the teaching of God's Word. That's why we put such an emphasis on this. It's why we, I believe it's so important for us to go verse by verse through a book of the Bible so we can preach the full counsel of God's Word. It's, it's why I'm, I'm not saying it's wrong, but it's why we don't have... Smoke machines and strobe lights. At the end of the day, my prayer, every Sunday, every time we gather, is not that I can come up with something so creative, not that I can have a funny joke that you'll go home laughing about, not that I'll have some story that I can look up on, on the internet that will leave you crying, not that we have this killer worship thing that takes place that we all are moaning and groaning and howling about, it's that when we leave, we leave lifting God's word up high that we realize that for our church the vision that God's at least impressed upon my heart is that our focal point will always be God's word unashamedly always always and it's my deep conviction that that is what God uses to see souls saved and lives changed we are about done but I do want to highlight two. I don't know if they're overly important things in this passage, but we see two kind of neat things occurring. Up until this point, as we go through this story of Barnabas and Saul, notice even beginning in the very first verse, as they go through this list of the church leaders, the first person mentioned is Barnabas. You go into when the Holy Spirit called and sent out, it was Barnabas and Saul. As this journey begins, Barnabas is the leader. He's the one kind of calling the shots. When we get to verse 13, we see a change, a shift. It's no longer Barnabas and Saul, but it's Paul. In verse 13 it says it's Paul and his companions. Later on towards the end of this chapter, it'll be, Paul and Barnabas. We see two changes in this chapter. In this 13 verses 1, verse 9, we see the change from Saul to Paul. His name changes, and Paul more than likely was born with both names. He was given both names at birth. Saul, we think of the Old Testament named after King Saul, the first Jewish, or first king of Israel. But he was also given a, a Roman name, a Greek name, to highlight his. Roman citizenship, which will come in handy later, and that was Paul. I think one of the reasons why we see this, this change, which goes in line with this missionary journey, is he's moving past Antioch. He's moving past Jerusalem. He's moving away from his Jewish roots, and he's going into the Greco-Roman area, territory, and so he begins to go by the name in which the people would accept him, would see him, would call him. But we also not only do we see a name change or a change in what he goes by, but we also see a change in leadership. That Paul now takes the reins. Paul becomes the leader, and from this point on, Paul it'll be Paul, his companions, Paul, Barnabas, Paul, and Silas. I just thought those were two neat little things. Let's pray. Thank you for taking the time to listen. Our goal at Redemption Hill is to see souls saved and lives changed. If the Holy Spirit spoke to you today and you made a decision, or maybe you have a question or a comment, I would love to hear from you. You can email me at chad, C-H-A-D, at rh-church.com. If you don't have a, tr- a regular church home, we would love for you to consider visiting us. You can go to our website, rh-church.com, Or find us on Facebook for directions. Until next time.